0: Hey, I'm Zach, I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with, and if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Good morning. Y'all sounded great just then. Really? I mean, that was awesome. Y'all are singing? I mean, you don't sing particularly well, but you were doing it loud? And that's what counts, I'm telling you. That's what counts. We're going to start this morning... Um, with a game. A game. Exciting, right? And I have a prize. Um, here, it's a Milky Way Mini. <laughs> it's been in my pocket for the last couple hours. It's a little squished. Um, my bad. It's a little warm. Depending on how you like your chocolate, that could be a positive thing, right? Um, I'm pr- I got it from uh, my uh, son's candy bucket this morning. Please do not tell him He will lose his mind, like legitimately that I stole candy from his candy bucket. I'm like 95% sure my wife could verify that this um, is probably from Halloween. That's my guess. Um, It was toward the bottom of the bucket. So now that you're really excited to play the game, for this prize, here's the game. I'm going to put a picture of someone on the screen. And the first person who yells out who it is on the screen, I'm going to throw this to slash at you. Make sense? We nod along? Okay, we get the game. Here we go. Who is this? Nope. Coco? Coco! Hey, Ross! Sorry, Rosa. Did not mean to hit you in the face with that Milky Way. Good start. This is Coco Goff. And if you don't know who Coco is, Coco is a tennis phenom. She is a prodigy. She has reached the fourth round or higher in three Grand Slam tennis tournaments. She's currently ranked as the 49th best female tennis player in the world and she has not even turned 16 years old yet. She's unbelievable. And here's the most amazing thing about her. She actually told us her secret. How she got to be a prodigy. How she got to be a phenom. She revealed to the world how she has become one of the great young athletes of our generation. Here's what she said. Before every match since I was eight, my dad and I say a prayer together. That's it. That's all she does. It's no practice. (laughs) No diet exercise plan. No training, no watching film, no studying her opponent. She grabs her racket, says a quick prayer with her dad, and then she dominates. (laughs) No, right? You all are smart people. You know it doesn't work like that. Coco had 118 mile an hour serve when she was 15 years old. I pray before tennis matches. That's never happened to me. Never gotten 118 mile an hour serve. (laughs) She decided to focus on her training for tennis when she was seven years old. Her parents, both outstanding collegiate athletes in their own right, moved their family from Atlanta to Florida so that Coco could train in what is called a professional tennis incubator. That's how Coco became great at such a young age. She didn't beat Venus Williams in straight sets at Wimbledon when she was 15 because she and her dad prayed right before her match. She did it because she was intentional, intentional with her time. Intentional with her practice, intentional with her health, and yes, intentional with her faith. We know this to be true in literally every area of life, right? Malcolm Gladwell proposed in his book, Outliers, a rule. All throughout the book, he talks about it. It's called the 10,000-hour rule, And this principle teaches that the key to achieving world-class expertise or skill in any area is accomplished by practicing the correct way for about 10,000 hours. Seattle rapper Macklemore wrote a song about this rule called 10,000 Hours. My favorite hook in this song goes like this. He says, you see, I study art. The greats work great because at birth they could paint. The greats were great because they paint a lot. 10,000 hours. If we wanna do something significant with our lives, it takes intentionality. We know this to be true in sports, like cocoa, in art, in music, in business, and in everything else, but for some reason, for some reason, when it comes to following Jesus, many of us resort back to saying a quick prayer and then hoping that things turn out okay. We keep doing the same things that we've always done and we keep getting the same results that we've always gotten. Now let me ask you this, this is not rhetorical. I want you to actually raise your hands. It's not a communication strategy. I I really wanna know, okay? I'm gonna ask you these questions. Number one, how many of you want to experience joy that doesn't just constantly fluctuate with your changing moods? How many of you want that? Okay, next question. How many of you wanna experience peace that isn't dictated by your external circumstances? Raise your hand. How many of you want to fulfill the call of Jesus to love your neighbor and to be loved by your neighbor? Raise your hand. How many of you want to do something significant with your life? Raise your hand. Now, last one. How many of you, right now, are experiencing joy, peace, love, and significance at the levels that you want to be? Very few of us. Almost everybody raised their hand for the first four. Very few of us for the last one. Our community pastor John Sorrell showed me this quote from Henry Nowen last week and I think it sums up this dilemma perfectly. He says, we often say, quote, I'm not very happy. I'm not content with the way my life is going. I'm not really joyful, I'm not really peaceful but I don't know how things can be different. And I guess I have to be realistic and accept my life the way it is. Henry says, it is this mood of resignation, I love that, it is this mood of resignation that prevents us from actively naming our reality, articulating our experience, and moving more deeply into the life of the Spirit. You know, we cannot accept things as they are or as they have always been. We can't settle into what Henry calls this mood of resignation, or I'm telling you, we will never experience the full life that Jesus talks about. We will never move more deeply into the joy and peace and love and significance that Jesus has and desires for you. If we want to do something significant with our lives, it takes intentionality. And I don't think there is anything more significant than living a life that is marked by love. You see, when Jesus was here on earth, they asked him, what the most important thing in the world was. How do you live a really significant life? What does that look like? And he said, you love God and you love others. That was the greatest commandment is what they called it. And if you've been here with us for the last few months, you know we've been in this thing called a year in the greatest commandment studying this commandment from Jesus, looking at what it means, um, expositing it from scripture, applying it to our lives. We kind of spent the first half of the year talking about what does it mean to love God and now in January moving forward in the spring we're talking about what does it mean, what does it look like to love others because loving God and loving others is what is most important. It is the most significant thing we can do with our lives. When we love God and we love others while simultaneously receiving the love of God and receiving the love of others, every good and beautiful thing flows out of that love. Because it's real love, it's true love. It's not what the world says is love, not what you think is love, but it's real, true, beautiful, God-given love. A first century pastor named Paul, he knew this better than most. Now, Paul, if you know much about him, he had this radical experience with the love of God. He went from shutting down churches to starting them. He went from killing Christians to sharing his, spending his entire life sharing Jesus with other people. He knew that a life of significance and every other good and beautiful thing flows out of that love, and that love got a hold of him. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he describes what this love looks like. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And what is love? Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Listen, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always keeps going. Always perseveres. Love never fails, Paul says. As you saw from the intro video we just played, or if you've been here over the last few weeks, we're in this teaching series called What is Love? It's based on this passage. And I love 1 Corinthians 13 because it's about what love really is. Like I said, it's, it's not about what I think love is, it's not about what you think love is, it's not about what society says love is or what commercials make love look like. This passage tells us the truth about love, and in this passage we learn that love is not primarily an emotion. You look at all those descriptors, all those characteristics of what love is, it is not primarily an emotion. You see, love is an action. Love is a collection of choices we make day by day. Love is being intentional. Love is being intentional. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. Love is not an affectionate feeling but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Love takes effort. Love takes practice. And like everything else, love takes intentionality. To quote the great theologians from the band Boston, love is more than a feeling, Bob. It's more than a feeling. It's this collection of choices we make day in and day out moment by moment, it's intentionality. So that's what this series is. We are examining these characteristics of love from 1 Corinthians 13 and looking for real, tangible, intentional ways that we can live them out in our everyday lives. Now John kicked us off a couple of weeks ago and he looked at how love is patient. Last week we talked about how love is kind. This week we are focusing on what it means that love does not envy, It does not boast, and it is not proud. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Paul groups this little trio of transgressions together because he's really making one major point with this sentence. And that point is this it's our main point for today. Love shifts the spotlight and lets other people shine. Love shifts the spotlight and it lets other people shine. True love, real love. The love that God has so lavished on us and that we are called to lavish on the world around us. This kind of love is willing to step out of the spotlight and even more than that, it's willing to point the spotlight on someone else. Instead of being threatened by other people's success, this kind of love celebrates them. This kind of love is able to listen to and share someone else's story, listen, without adding their own. This love does not one-up people. When I was in second grade, my parents moved me to a new school. This time we lived in kind of far south Austin, and this school was up north, so that meant waking up really early and driving over an hour every day to get there. Now, this was 25 years ago, but I'm telling you, traffic on Mopac is the same. It is terrible. Now, if you have a long commute, you know how brutal this can be. So my parents started looking for a way to make it better. And the answer came in the form of a carpool. We found another family down south that went to the same school, and we could carpool with them, and we could kind of switch off who drove. Now, this was a great idea for parents, but if you've ever been a part of a carpool, it's kind of an arranged marriage of sorts, right? You don't really know what you're getting in this other person in the carpool with you. And it was great for my parents, but I I didn't like it at all. And I didn't like it because of Taylor. Taylor was the kid my age in the family that we carpooled with. And Taylor was a one-upper. I mean, like he was amazing at it. Okay, raise your hand if you know a one-upper. Okay, keep it up if the one-upper is sitting with you (laughs) right now. No, don't do that. Just kidding. Listen, Taylor wasn't your average one-upper, okay? Taylor was truly brilliant, like the the Coco Goth, if you will, of one-upping, phenom, a prodigy. I've become convinced later in life, as I've grown up and and matured spiritually, that that one-upping was Taylor's spiritual gift. It was. He was unbelievable at it, a true natural. It didn't matter what story I told, he had a better one. It didn't matter how well I did in a class, he did better. Whatever award I won, he actually had won two of them, right? One right before me and one right after me, and he, I probably only won one because they didn't want to give it to the same person three times in a row, right? This is the kind of kid that Taylor was. He got so bad at one point, I was so frustrated with it, that I decided to set Taylor up, right? I had gotten a 95 on a test we'd just taken in the same class, and I knew, I knew Taylor had only gotten a 93. I'd seen his paper when they handed it out. Now, he had not seen my paper. He didn't know that I'd gotten a 95. But instead of telling Taylor that I'd gotten a 95 on the way home in the carpool that day, I thought, I'm going to tell him I got a 90, right? And I'm going to tell him I've got a 90, and I was was happy with it but not ecstatic with it. He was going to do what? Whip out his test and be like, 93. Immediately, I knew it. I knew it. And then when he did that, I would say, oh, wait. Here's my actual test, 95. What about it, Taylor? One up that. That was my whole plan. I was in second grade, okay? So I did exactly that. The whole charade, it was perfectly played. Oscar-worthy performance, to be honest with you. And I did it, and, and as soon as I whip out that paper and say, ah, 95, Taylor, what about that? I close my eyes, and I'm basking finally beating the one-upper. And in the mere seconds that my eyes were closed, as I reveled in my victory, Taylor grabbed a pen, and he wrote plus four next to his 93, and then a big old 97 at the top of his paper, and he said, oh no, I forgot. The teacher told me to add four points to my paper for all of the extra work that i have been doing. I actually got a 97. I couldn't believe it. He'd won again. I couldn't believe that Taylor would rather tell a blatant lie, right? One that no one in the car would come remotely close to believing than let someone outshine him. He would rather do that. He would rather look like a fool, writing plus four on his paper. and and, You know, the teacher writes in red. He's got like a blue marker next to it, you know? Who would do something like that? Well, we we do. You and me. We do it all the time. See, we pretend our lives are better than they actually are, so that other people will be impressed with them. We embellish our stories so other people are, think we're more interesting. We make ourselves the bigger victim when someone else is sharing their struggle. You might not have connected that one, but that's envy. That's pride. That's pulling the spotlight on yourself. You see, many times we are so quick to grab the spotlight and point it on ourselves that we don't even really know it's happening. We do this in conversations. We do it in correspondence. And man, do we do it on social media. We make it about us. And listen to me. It's killing our relationships. It's killing them. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. When we one-up people, when we steal the spotlight, the love between us and that person begins to wither away. But when we shift the spotlight, When we let other people shine, when we step out of being in front, even though we have every right to be in front, we feel like. When we shift the spotlight and we let others shine, love begins to grow and thrive and blossom in beautiful ways. Do you know how I know this is true? Because this is what Jesus did for us. This is how Jesus loved us. In fact, later in a different passage, Jesus doubles down on this greatest commandment of love God and love others with his followers. He says this, love one another. Listen, just as I have loved you, you should love one another. We don't get to define what love looks like for ourselves. Jesus told us and he showed us. Love others not as you want to, Love others not as the world tells you to, but love others as I have loved you. And I'm telling you, no one in the history of the world has ever shifted the spotlight and let others shine like Jesus did. Never. Listen to this exhortation from Pastor Paul to the church in the city of Philippi. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Why? Because you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus did. Though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. Even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he didn't use that to his advantage. He never played the God card, right? He didn't walk into a full restaurant with the disciples and say, an hour wait for a table? Are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? I'm God. Open something up. He didn't one-up his friends who were telling a story about their new baby girl being born and how sweet she was and how she was already walking and she's little and it's beautiful and say, well, that's cool, but I created all of humanity. You know that, right? He didn't do that. He didn't listen to Mary Magdalene talking about, it's hard to be a woman in the first century, Jesus, and say, oh, you think you got it rough? I'm going to die on a cross in a couple of months. He didn't do that. He didn't play the God card on us. Jesus shifted the spotlight, and he let others shine. He actively elevated other people above himself, especially those whose society had pushed down. This is how he loved us, and this is how he calls us to love others. God is saying, treat people like they are more important than you. Because I came to earth as Jesus, and I treated you like you were more important than me. That's heavy. Not because we actually are better than him. We don't treat others as better than ourselves because they actually are better than us, right? We are equal. We are one in Christ. We treat others better than ourselves because that's what Jesus did for us. And that's what love looks like. Love shifts the spotlight and lets other people shine. Now here's the part of the sermon where the pastor would normally say something like, so just stop feeling envious of others, right? Stop feeling prideful, stop stealing the spotlight, stop one-upping, stop seeking validation by trying to make everything else about you, stop playing the victim. You know you shouldn't do these things, you know Jesus doesn't want you to do these things, so just stop, stop doing them. But most of us know it does not work like that. Trying to ignore the prideful and and envious feelings we have doesn't actually help us in the long run. My therapist always says that emotions, they can't be ignored. They can't be stuffed down. They must be dealt with or they will resurface somewhere else. That's true. If I would just yelled at you guys and said, stop being envious, stop being prideful, and you just pushed it down, it would come out somewhere else. I'm telling you, most of the times it comes out in those relationships that we are most intimate with. The people we love most are who they come out on. So it's not enough to just say, stop doing them. We actually have to deal with something. So here's what I think we have to do. We have to pay very close attention to our internal reaction when someone else is getting attention. Let me say that again. I want you to pay very close attention to your internal reaction when someone else is getting attention? What happens in your heart when someone else gets an award, gets a raise, maybe gets some public praise that you feel like you really deserve? What do you feel when someone is getting attention that you think should be on you? If you feel envy and pride start to bubble up, If you feel yourself unable to listen to someone else's success without adding your own at the end, if you feel compelled to one-up like Taylor to shift the spotlight to yourself, it's an indicator, listen to me, it's an indicator that you are not really satisfied with where you are or who you are. And that's a big deal. There is something in you that doesn't feel good enough or loved enough. See, Taylor's mom, she always drove when it was their turn for carpool. But one day, Taylor's dad drove us. And I realized when I got in the car that morning that that was actually the first time I'd ever met Taylor's dad. I never had even seen him before. He left for work before we woke up, and he didn't get home until after dinner. A lot of times after, Taylor had even gone to bed. Taylor was a completely different kid in the car with his dad. I mean, like, I'd never met the Taylor that was in the car that morning. Usually he was outgoing, right? He was gregarious. He was (laughs) exciting. He was one upping. He was telling stories, always making jokes. But with his dad, he was quiet, he was nervous. On that first day with Taylor's dad, I remember us sitting in silence for like the first 10 minutes of the car ride. Like nobody said anything. Then quiet finally broke when his dad said, Taylor, what'd you make on that math test last week? So quietly it was almost inaudible, Taylor said, An 88. His dad said, What? Son, speak up. What'd you make on that test last week? An 88. An 88, are you serious, Taylor? We spent two hours studying for that test, you couldn't even make an A? I don't even know why I bother with you, man. That was it. In the hour it took to get from South Austin to North Austin in Mopac traffic, those were the only words spoken. It was like that last sentence, I don't know why I even bother with you, just hung in the air like it was this tangible thing I could almost like grab and, and push aside, but I couldn't. It was just there and it hung over us and I, it hung over Taylor most. I don't know why I even bother with you. Even as a second grader, I remember realizing immediately, this is why Taylor lies. This is why Taylor one-ups. This is why all the time he tries to make himself look better, look smarter, look stronger, because his dad only likes him when he performs. I don't know what your story is. But maybe you're here, maybe you had a parent like Taylor, one that only liked you when you got the right grades or when you did well in sports or when you stayed out of trouble. And now even as an adult, you're carrying that little girl or that little boy inside of you still. Never feeling like you're good enough. Maybe you're someone who just has a really mean inner critic. You have that little voice inside you that is always whispering about how you aren't smart enough or how you aren't attractive enough or how you aren't talented enough. And when the relationship that you're in goes bad, that voice says, you messed it up again just like you always do? When you don't get a job or the promotion that you applied for, that voice says you didn't deserve it anyway. What made you think that you would get that? Or maybe you're just someone who has been ensnared by this comparison trap that runs so rampant in our culture today, especially with social media. There's an entrepreneur named John Lee Dumas who says, we live in a world where everyone is sharing one perfect second of their imperfect day. And we're interpreting it, we're interpreting that perfect second as a life of perfection. However, the reality is much different. That's good, right? Everyone is sharing one perfect second of their imperfect day. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your reason is. But if you feel envy and pride start to bubble up every time someone else is doing well, it's an indication in you that some part of you does not feel good enough, does not feel loved enough. Some part of you that doesn't like who you are, where you are, what you're doing. And that's why it is so vital that we are grounded in what Jesus says about us, who he says we are, how he looks at us, how he loves us. 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. Everything that we do, every good and beautiful and perfect thing comes out of the love that Jesus has for us. We can only shift the spotlight and let others shine when we understand the depth of Jesus' love for us and we remember that he first did it for us. You see, even though he was one with God, even though he was God, he didn't use that to his advantage. He humbled himself to serve humanity. He humbled himself to death on a cross all because of his great love for you, and for me. We're going to end our time together this morning with an exercise, something that we've never done before. Uh, Full disclosure, I've been really into Mr. Rogers lately. He's been a hero of mine since I was a little kid, but over the last couple of years, I have like just totally rediscovered his greatness as an adult. Watched the documentary that came out a couple of years ago, and listening to podcasts, and even re-watching some of those old Mr. Rogers neighborhood shows. You may not know, but later in life, Fred Rogers got invited to do a lot of public speaking. And one of his favorite venues were graduations and commencement ceremonies. And every time he would speak at one, he would have everyone in the room do this exercise, where they would close their eyes for one minute and think about people who had loved them and helped them get to where they are that day. We're gonna do something similar. In just a second, for a minute, we're gonna close our eyes and spend some time thinking about the great love that Jesus has for you. All the times that he's shown up to help. All the times that he's shifted the spotlight onto you, that he's elevated you, that he's helped you that he's hugged you, that he's served you. Maybe it was some beautiful divine experience that you had, some spiritual thing, but maybe it was as simple as just through the hands of a friend that came over when you were struggling, that brought you some food, that served you, that loved you, that cared for you. If you were here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're kind of thinking about faith, kind of kicking the tires on it, I want to challenge you to use this time and think about all the times that people have shown you love, that people have helped you. Because you see, we believe that our God is love and that he loves everyone, including you, more than you could ever imagine. And because of that, we believe that any time we experience love, true love, it has its origination point in Jesus. So that's what we're gonna do. No music, no scripture reading, just some time alone thinking about the depth of Jesus' love for you. I'm going to do it with you, okay? So close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's be reminded of just how much Jesus loves us.